Well, I'll tell you what, let's uh, open our Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, also, I want to encourage you, Nadine is in a regular room now. Joy, she's in room 708, right? 703? Uh, it's in the North Tower at Scott and White up in Temple. And um, I know they would love to see some of you guys if you can go up and, uh, and visit. Uh, if you can't, please, whether you visit or whether you are not able to, please keep them lifted up in prayer. Um, I don't think a lot of people realize how close uh, Nadine came to, to uh, going on to her reward. But the Lord said it wasn't time yet. And thankfully, um, she is doing better. Uh, she's still very sick. But she is in a regular room, which is a very, very good sign. So continue to pray for her and the family. And if you can make it up there, go and see them. I know it would be encouraging. Also, as you pray for Nadine, pray for Roland. He's been there with her almost constantly. And it's, if anybody's ever spent any amount of time in a hospital, it's very, very tiring. And uh, he has a lot of responsibility uh, along with caring for his wife. So pray for his strength also and uh, the Lord's protection over him. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, I, before we begin, I'm going uh, to read some verses here to you, but I had this thought. You know, God has ordained certain things. So for instance, God has ordained prayer, right? Jesus, you know, on Wednesday nights, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we study the Lord's Prayer in, in quite a lot of depth. Um, and if you read that in Matthew chapter 6, you'll, you'll see that as Jesus is teaching about prayer, one thing that he tells us um, in verse 8, in Matthew 6 verse 8, he says, Therefore do not be like the heathen, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. And so, People have asked me before, if God knows what we need before we ask Him, then why do we have to ask Him? And we could go into all kinds of long, involved, theological answers. We really could. But I think it's just a lot more simpler to say this. God has ordained prayer. If God doesn't know the beginning from the end and everything in between, then He's not God. Right? You guys understand that. I often ask people, what God do you want to worship? Do you want to worship a God that doesn't know everything? Do you want to worship a God that's subject to the will of man? Do you want to worship a God that's subject to the will of, of, this, of the enemy, of, of Satan? No. Or do you want to serve a God who is Lord of all, who, whose power and whose authority is above all, who is omniscient, in every way. But yet, even though all of those things are true, we're commanded to pray. Throughout the scripture, we're commanded to pray. So God has ordained prayer. So I, I think the, the best thing to do is to just accept that. So we pray. We pray for healing. We pray for Cindy's healing. We pray for Nadine's healing. We pray for all kinds of things, great and small. God cares. We pray. Another thing God has ordained is God has ordained the power of the gospel. God has ordained that men be saved through the preaching 
of the gospel. So here's another question people have asked me. They say, does God know everything? Yes. So God knows whether I'm going to be saved or not be saved. Yes. Then why does it matter whether I go to church or why does it matter whether I hear the gospel or why does that matter? If God already knows, then then it's already, why does it matter? Well, it matters because God has commanded us to preach the gospel and God has ordained that men will be saved through the preaching of the gospel. There's no other way. There's not many paths. There's not many ways. There's one way. Jesus is the way, and the preaching of the gospel is how men will come to salvation. For the gospel is the power of God to salvation. So God has ordained the preaching of the gospel, that men be saved through the preaching of this gospel. So we pray, and so we preach. Amen? Can we accept that? So we pray, and so we preach. So we pray for the salvation of men. So we pray for God to move in the lives and the hearts of men. So we pray for God to move the mountains that may exist in our life, whether it be physical healing, or whether it be financial difficulty, or whether it be relational or emotional issue. Whatever it is, we pray. How many of you have friends or family, loved ones, who you know do not know Jesus Christ, and they need to be saved. How many of you know people that need to be saved? Pray for them. Pray for them. God knows their eternal eternal destiny, but you don't. Pray for them. And don't assume that they're just going to get saved Some way. No, there is a way. It is through the gospel. So proclaim the gospel to them. Through your words, yes. But don't leave out your life. Because the message you preach through your life is the most important message that you will preach. So this is my question to you today. What message do you preach? This is what our our talk is going to be about today. It's a question to you. What message do you preach? Because do you realize that we all preach a message? We all preach a message through our life, whether we realize it or not. I preach from this pulpit. But the more frightening reality is this. I preach a message through my life every day. And people come here and they hear me preach from this pulpit or they hear me on the internet, or they hear that I'm a pastor or a preacher, but I wonder what my life is communicating to them outside of the confines of this building here. Because we preach a message all the time. So what message is your life communicating As followers of Christ, as disciples of Christ, our message is to communicate the message of the gospel, the message of Christ. There's only one message. It's His. It's His message. There's only one story. It's His story. What is your life communicating? And that doesn't happen accidentally. We don't just accidentally communicate the gospel. We don't accidentally live out that message. 
We must purpose to communicate his message. How do we do that? Are we supposed to just live lives and we're all stressed out, whether we're communicating the gospel, whether we're sending the right message or not, and I'm losing sleep at night because I don't know whether I sent the right message today? No. One of the fruits of the Spirit is peace. Listen, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. I always tell people there's not seven different fruits there. They're one fruit. And in the fruit of the Spirit, there is peace. There should be a peace in my life. If I understand who I am in Christ, if I understand what the gospel is, how I'm saved, what Christ has done for me, there should be a peace that reigns in my life. One of the most beautiful passages of Scripture is John 15. And I love the picture that Jesus gives us there when he, he speaks of abiding in Him. And I always ask people this question, what does the word abiding conjure up in your mind? Does the word abiding conjure up work or rest? I don't know about you, but when I hear the word abide, I immediately think of rest. Jesus said we abide in Him. We rest in Him. That doesn't mean we don't work. That doesn't mean we don't do things. But it means that we abide in Him, we live in Him with an understanding of what in reality is taking place. We learn to abide in Him. And as we learn to abide in Him, we learn to grow and to live in that purpose of communicating, of manifesting His life. Amen? The message of the cross is foolishness or it is the power of God. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's begin for time's sake in verse 18. Verse 17. I'm going to read 17 through 31 to the end of the chapter. Just follow with me. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with Wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this age or the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, He who glories, let Him glory in the Lord. Amen. Father, we pray today that You would open our hearts and open our minds, and that Your Word would find entrance And that your gospel would transform us, God. That it would save, that it would transform, that it would change us. That it would conform us to the image of Christ Jesus. We pray this, Lord, for your glory. And everybody said, Amen. All right, so the message of the cross, look at this, Paul says, the message of the cross... It's either going to be foolishness or it's going to be the power of God. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to who? To those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power is in the gospel. It's not in the wisdom of man. Look look at these verses. Paul, as he begins to go through this, he he says this, look in verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Is God against wisdom? No, He is wisdom. Wisdom comes from Him. But there is a wisdom that the world has that calls the message of the cross foolishness. There was a wisdom that the Jews had. This is why Paul says to the Jews, this was a stumbling block. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. You're not going to get saved through an intellectual argument. Do you understand that? God's not against intellect either. He gave you your brain. Your brain is the most amazing thing. There's no computer on earth that can even... Slightly compared to your brain. I'm telling you what, the the capacity of the human brain to do things and to process information is amazing. God created that. God designed that. God gave that to you. It's a gift. We should use our intellect. But I'm telling you right now that no man will be saved because of an intellectual argument. Paul says, the things of the Spirit are not discerned by the natural man or by the mind of man, but they are spiritually discerned. Why? Because they are spiritual. You know, for those of that have been through the Not I But Christ study, you, you know that we use this analogy in this study. It's like trying to hear a sunset. 
How many of you have ever heard a sunset? Uh-uh. Can't hear a sunset. Now, the fact that you can't hear the sunset, does that mean sunsets don't exist? No, it just means you're trying to discern a sunset with the wrong faculty. So if you blindfold yourself and you go out there and you say, I'm hearing the sunset now. No, you're not. So your ears were never meant to hear a sunset. Your eyes were meant to see the sunset. So when you are using the right faculty, you can, you can discern a sunset, right? That's the way the things of the Spirit are. The things of the Spirit were never meant to be grasped and discerned and salvation come to you because you got it all figured out intellectually. You're going to be saved because God, by the power of His Spirit, opens up the eyes of your understanding spiritually and you grasp spiritually the things that are spiritual. Then you can use your intellect. Then you can read the Bible and use the intellect God gave you and you can discern it spiritually. You read, listen, I promise you the whole time I read to you, I was using my brain. I was using my intellect to be able to read to you. But I didn't just understand this message because I intellectually grasped it one day. No, I understand the message of the gospel because God opened up my blind eyes and he raised me from the dead and he gave me eyes to see and ears to hear. He did that spiritually. Now, the brain he gave me, the intellect he gave me can be used to take in these truths. And so the power of the gospel is not the same thing as the wisdom of the wise. He said, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'll bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. When Jesus came, the Jews requested a sign. The Greeks were seeking after wisdom. It's really there, this contrast between the Jews and the Greeks almost puts them on opposite ends of the spectrum. The Greek philosophy of that day was the body doesn't matter, the material world doesn't matter. This is what John, if you go to 1 John, let me just hold your place there, let's turn over to 1 John real quick. Go to 1 John. Notice how 1 John begins, notice how John begins his letter here. There's a reason why he says the things that he has said. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested. We have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. He said, we've seen him, we've handled him. He was really here tangibly, materially. Jesus came in a body. He walked physically on this earth. You Gnostics, you Greeks who who want to say that that God wouldn't bother with putting his son or coming in a human body, and why would God bother raising up a, a dead body? Because the flesh means nothing. It's all about the spirit. Woo! We got some Christians that live in that realm today. Don't live in that realm. Live firmly planted in the truth. So the Jews, Jesus comes, and the Jews, they, they want a sign. Oh, you're the Messiah? Then prove it to us. Show us a sign and prove that you really are the Messiah. Oh, we got lots of good Bible scholars around here. There are lots of people can teach the Bible like you can, Jesus. No, give us a sign. We want to know that you're the Messiah. 
Uh-uh. Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do it. What is the message that we're preaching with our life? The power is in the gospel. It's not in the wisdom of the wise. It's not in our ability to attract people or to make God attractive to people. Can you imagine Jesus and his apostles sitting around having strategy sessions of how they're going to make their ministry more attractive to the masses? Or sitting around trying to figure out what programs and events they can come up with to draw a big crowd? Jesus didn't have a problem drawing a crowd. Matter of fact, Jesus worked really hard to... It's really counterintuitive. You read the Gospels and you see Jesus saying things and doing things that drove people away from him. It's like, Jesus, haven't you read the latest church growth stuff out there? You're really not... Jesus didn't want people to follow him just because he could multiply bread and fish. He told them, he called them out, he said, you're only following me because of the loaves and the fishes, not because of who I am. You don't really care about who I am, and you don't really know who I am. You just want the miracles. Those ideas that we come up with today, those things that we strategize and do today are modern inventions created to attract people to God. Do you know that America, there are more missionaries now being sent to America? We are the number one nation on earth that's receiving missionaries. You understand what I'm saying? The rest of the world is looking at America as the number one mission field on planet earth. Now, we're still sending out more missionaries than we're receiving, But for the first time ever, we have become the number one nation receiving the most missionaries from around the world. Why? Because we are the fifth largest mission field on planet Earth. And a lot of Christians around the world understand how important in their mind, how important this nation is in terms of the gospel. And we've talked a lot about these things over the last months and, and years. What is going to change America? Do, do our churches need to get more creative in trying to figure out how to draw more people in? We've become pretty creative. I mean, there's been instances where people have driven tanks on stage and stayed up on the rooftops and had sex every night and promoted that. And um, I ain't kidding you. Those are real things. To draw people to their church. Can you imagine Jesus doing things like that? Can you imagine any of the apostles doing something like that? 
Can you imagine the Apostle Paul saying, I think this week we're going to have a Roman chariot as an object lesson. We're going to drive it in here at the school of Tyrannus. We're going to draw the masses in. I don't think so. Somehow I just don't get that when I read the Bible. But yet when I watch the Super Bowl... And I watch the Super Bowl commercials. I love the Super Bowl commercials. I like the commercials better than the game because they are so creative in how they appeal to people and how they draw people in. Listen, that's what Madison Avenue is supposed to do. I was a marketing major in college. They're supposed to do that. That's not what the church is called to be. That's not. We have deceived ourselves into thinking that we're going to draw people, attract people, and keep people, and save people through the wisdom of men, the wisdom of this age, and that's not what the Bible teaches. As a matter of fact, Paul writes that God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. The Jews request a sign. They're not going to get it. The Greeks... They're seeking after wisdom, and all of this is foolishness to them. It's a stumbling block to the Greeks because I won't give them a sign because their Messiah died, and they couldn't see the victory that was brought through the cross, so it's a stumbling block to them. The Jews think it's foolishness because why would God bother resurrecting a dead body? And Paul says... God purposed that the world would not know him through wisdom. Well, how are we going to know him then? As a matter of fact, it says it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. How are we going to be saved then? We're going to be saved by the power of the gospel. We're called to relate to those around us in a context that can be understood and that doesn't alienate us or put us out of reach. In other words, as a believer, I need to understand those that I'm living with and ministering to and use wisdom in my interaction with them. But never does that mean that we compromise the message of the gospel. Never. Never does it mean that we call evil good and good evil for the sake of making men feel better about their sin. No, never. We see this revealed in the life of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Let's turn a few pages over. Let's read that. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, and that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. But that never means that Paul compromised the truth. He didn't compromise the message of the gospel. If he's in Rome with a bunch of Gentiles and they serve bacon, pork, bacon, and eggs to him, and that's all he has to eat, he'll eat bacon and eggs. 
because he understands what Jesus said to Peter. All things are clean now. Don't, don't call what I've made clean unclean. But never would he say, it's okay, buddy, if you're committing adultery on your wife there. God understands those urges that are within you there. No, he'd never do that. Or, you know, I'm just attracted to the same sex, so, you know, surely God will wink at that. No. Mm -mm. Hungry? Okay to steal? No. It's not okay to steal. We don't compromise the truth. We don't compromise the very nature and character of Christ. So as followers of Christ, we're not called to make... God attractive or conformed to the world for the sake of drawing the world to Christ. We're called to preach and to live the gospel, which is a message, listen, that calls sinners and calls the world to be conformed to God. Now, if we really believe that, that means there's some lines that are going to be drawn. And we're going to have to determine as people of faith, as professed followers of Christ, whether we're going to honor those lines, not that we draw the line, but that the Scripture draws for us. The Scripture clearly teaches us that it's the Father that draws men to Christ. It's not our ability to attract them. It's not how fun we make things. Listen, no one loves to have fun more than me. You guys that know me know that. I love to have fun. And you know what? I've had more fun in Christ than I ever had in the world. God's not anti-fun. This is not what this is about. We've come to think that if we can just attract men with these certain methods, John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up, at the last day. So depending on where the numbers fall, all of this massive number of people that are leaving the church, that are leaving faith because it's meaningless to them. Why is that? I mean, after all, we've had our kids in church from the day they were born. We've made them go to Sunday school. We've made them go to youth. We made them do these things. Then we wonder when they get out on their own, why do they leave and depart and they're not in church? It wasn't because we didn't make church fun enough. It wasn't because we didn't feed them enough pizza. It wasn't because the music wasn't cool enough. It wasn't any of that. Heart conversion is by the power of God. It's by the gospel. Maybe it's because we failed to give our kids the gospel. And maybe it's because we're too dependent upon the pastor and the church to give it to them. Maybe it's more about what we live every day than just what they get a couple of times a week. I know, that's a, hard, that's a tough message. But I'm talking about the salvation of the world. I'm talking about the church. Listen, we are the church. How are we, why are we in this community? Are we here to affect transformation? Are we here to see the gospel change and transform and salvation come to the lost? Is that why we're here? Yes. It's got to be why we're here. If it's not, then we just need to go away and do something else. We, as the people of God, have to find our greatest joy in Jesus. 
He is your greatest joy. I promise that. Have you found him to be that? I didn't say your life is problem free. See, this is another problem. We, we've become very prone at preaching a message in the American church that if you're really blessed, if you're really close to God, you're not going to have any problems in life. Oh, you're sick. Well, you know, God doesn't want you to be sick. You must have a problem there. That is a lie from the pit of hell. I'm just going to say it like it is. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Tell me where Jesus said, in this world you won't have any problems if you just have enough faith. No. As a matter of fact, he said the opposite. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. He didn't say, I'll make all your problems go away. He said, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. In other words, you may have to walk through your problems in this world, but be of good cheer. This world is not the end of it. Your problems are going to pass away. They're temporary, but what I've prepared for you is eternal. It's not the science of attraction, but the power of the gospel that the church is called to. We preach the gospel to all. We pray for all, for it is the Father, not us, who saves. It is the Father, not us, who heals. It is the Father, not us, who delivers. But remember what we talked about in the beginning. He has ordained that we pray. He has ordained that we preach. He has ordained that we declare. So we pray, we preach, we declare. But it's, it's God who will perform. It's God who will provide. It's God who will bring the power to save, to heal, to deliver. So we should live and work and play in such a way that is attractive to the world in that the fruit of our life is attractive. Our life, I believe this, I believe our life should be attractive. Not that I don't have any problems and I'm driving the sweetest new car I can and I've got the fattest bank account I can imagine. That's not attractive to the world. What's attractive is that I can live in this life, I can walk through this world, and I, ha- I can have peace in the midst of my trial and my tribulation. That even though there's lack in my life and even though there's things going on and the world is pressing against me, somehow I've got peace. Somehow they're able to see joy. Somehow love is still there. Why? Because Christ is there. Because these things are not not things that we manufacture. We can put the facade on, but I promise you eventually the root's going to determine the fruit. And the facades are going to come down and the truth is going to be known. If Christ is really in you, And he is your joy and he is your peace. That's going to come out of your life as you abide in him. It will. We'll all have our moments. Listen, I have my moments. Ask my kids, they'll tell you. Just come over to my house on Friday night. You'll see. I'm human. But I know, listen, I know. I know what I am being conformed to. I know what I am being brought to. And I know it's not by my own power, by my own will. I know it's by the power of God. And as I surrender and as I submit to that, 
God does His work. So our life should be attractive as we demonstrate the fruit of God's Spirit in all that we do. As Christians, listen, please hear this. We're not to be moralistic legalists. This is not about moralism or legalism, keeping a bunch of rules and regulations. We're not to be moralistic legalists. We're to be joyful members being conformed to the life and the image of the Son of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the power of the gospel. And so we present the uncompromised gospel for only in the gospel is the power of God to save. No power of attraction can save or keep man. Only the power of the gospel. So the power is the gospel. It's not the wisdom of the wise or our our ability to make things happen. Now let's look at verse 21. Verse 21 through 25, Paul writes, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Do we believe that? The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. The power is in the foolishness of God, not in the strength of man. Do you understand that To the natural man, the message of the gospel, the message of the cross is foolishness. That God invites me to die. I thought God wanted to save me. I thought God wanted to give me things. No, God wants you to die. Well, that doesn't make sense. I don't think I like that message. I think I'll go be a Buddhist. I think I'll go over here and go that prosperity message place. They tell me that I can drive big cars and have lots of money, and that's what God wants to give me. Well, go, go for it. The power is in the foolishness of the message, not the strength of man. The power is in Christ crucified. What did the crucifixion of Jesus do? What did it do to his flesh? killed it. He killed his flesh. His flesh was crucified. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, pick up your cross and follow me. He said this before he was crucified. We, though they didn't get it then, we understand now that what Jesus was saying, if you want to be my disciple and my follower, you're going to have to be crucified like I was crucified. In other words, we're going to have to be willing to lay down to lose our life. At first glance, that may not seem like good news. At first glance, it may seem like surely there's a better message than that, right? This is why Paul is writing this. He said the Jews think we're a bunch of, I mean, the the Greeks think we're a bunch of fools. And the Jews, we're a total stumbling block to them. They can't, receive, they can't receive anything we're saying. Why? Because the message doesn't make sense to them. 
surely there's got to be a better way here. So when we talk about the power being in Christ crucified, not in the flesh, what that means is there's an utter losing of our life, of our self, to the death of the cross. So in the cross, think about this, in the cross, our identity is gone. We lose our identity, but we gain another. What is the identity that we gain in the cross? We gain the identity of Christ. In the cross, our identity is gone, but that of Christ is gained. That's foolishness to a lot of people, especially to those who refuse to lose control of their life. You guys know my theory. We're all control freaks. Some admit it, some don't. Some know it, some don't. When it gets down to it, none of us want to lose our life. But if we're going to gain life, if we're going to find life, we're going to have to lose it. That means that we're going to have to lose control of our life. And that is scary for a lot of people. But this is what the message of the cross is. This is the power of the message. It's not in the strength of men. It's in the power of the cross. And the power of the cross kills me before it does anything else to me popular American church has settled for another gospel that satisfies the flesh in an effort to attract the masses. Before the gospel of Christ does anything, it crucifies us so that we may say like Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The gospel is not me, but Christ in me. This message of the cross, of the crucified life, is foolishness to a lot of people. It doesn't make sense for man to lose his life, to trade strength for weakness. This is why the Jews could not accept Christ as their Messiah. Many, many of them. Many did, but many didn't. Because when they saw Jesus beat, scourged, bloodied, beyond recognition, and ultimately hung on a cross to die, they could not believe that that was their Messiah. Their Messiah would come in power and strength. Their Messiah would never allow such weakness to take control of him. They saw the cross as weakness. And this is why Paul says to the Jews, this message is a stumbling block. Because they couldn't believe the sign that was given. The sign of the death and the resurrection of the Son of God. It doesn't make sense to trade strength for weakness. So men reject the message of the cross for a more appealing message that seems right to them. But remember what the proverb says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Instead of teaching the truth about sin, much of the church chooses to ignore sin. Instead of teaching the gospel of grace, the grace of God that saves us from our sin, some promote a gospel that does not deal with sin, does not deal with grace, and does not give man a reason to turn to God for anything beyond self-acceptance and success. If you listen closely, this is a lot of what is being promoted today. And I'm telling you, not because I say so, but because the Bible says that message will not save men. It will only set them up for disillusionment. 
And God will disillusion them in an effort to save them truly. And this is why the church must get back to the preaching of the gospel. God does not want to satisfy our flesh. He wants to crucify it. We must not be afraid of that truth. You hear me? I'm talking about us being able to go out and preach a message with our life. Not that we're going to go out and say, oh, you know what, God wants to kill you. No. But can we deal honestly with sin? Can we first deal honestly with sin in our own life? And, and just give it to God? And trust that God in His grace saved us in spite of our sin? That's what the Bible teaches. That's why the gospel is good news. Good news isn't, now you have the power to do it yourself. I still have to do it myself. That's not good news. Good news is, God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. He gave to me what I didn't deserve. That's good news. And now that he's done that, now that he has taken me and he has caused me to abide in him, now I just... I just lose myself in Him. I lose my own identity and I embrace the life of Christ and I just allow the Spirit of God to begin to do a work in me of changing and transforming me by the power of God to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, to make known to the world out there the very life of Christ. That, is that our desire as followers of Christ, as children of God? Is that our desire? To understand that the greatest message you'll preach, church, is how you live your life out there. How you live your life with those that you encounter on a daily basis that God has ordained that you encounter at work, at play, at home, wherever. If we're not teaching the whole message of the gospel, it's not the gospel. We can't talk about the good news and not talk about sin. In fact, we should never talk about sin apart from the grace of God, and we should never talk about the grace of God apart from sin. Grace isn't, I can do anything I want now and God approves. No, grace is, you are sinful, you are dead in your sin, and in spite of your sinfulness and your death in sin, God raised you up even though you didn't deserve to be raised up. And on your best day, you can't imagine how rejecting you are to God, yet God in His grace chose to save you. We can't talk about grace apart from sin, and we can't talk about sin apart from grace. God doesn't just save us, He saves us from and to something. He saves us from our sin and death, and He saves us to His life and His righteousness. Verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Do you see how counterintuitive God is to the way we would do something, to the wisdom of the world? and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised. The King of glory was crucified and died the most horrible and shameful death. The King of glory experienced shame and suffering like no one ever has. He didn't have to, he chose to. 
This is why the Muslims today cannot embrace Christianity because they can't get past this thing that, first of all, God would never become a man, and if he did, he would never allow some other man to do what was done to him. They're like the Jews in that sense. So if you try to approach them with an intellectual argument and convince them why they should believe Jesus is the Messiah, is the only way, you're going to fail. Because it doesn't make intellectual sense to them because they don't have the same frame of reference that you and I do. Americans are notoriously for not, they don't understand, we just don't get that. But here's what will happen. If you will consistently preach and teach and live the gospel of Christ, there is a message there. There is a power there that God will use to change and transform hearts. I don't care whether Muslim, Buddhist, American, atheist, agnostic, it doesn't matter. Texan. God will take the gospel and God will transform a heart with the gospel. He chooses these things, these base, these weak, these shameful things, that no flesh, verse 29, should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Do you see that, church? Who is your righteousness? Christ became righteousness for you. Who is your sanctification? Christ became sanctification for you. Who is your redemption. Christ became redemption for you. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. The glory is in the Lord. It's not in the flesh. Christ has done his saving work by grace alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul says, I've only got one thing to boast in, it is the cross. Church, we have only one thing to boast in, it is the cross. The death and the life we have in Christ. The only thing that will bring people to God and keep people committed to God is the power of God bringing about true heart conversion and spiritual transformation. That will not happen apart from prayer. That will not happen apart from the preaching of the gospel. That will not be brought about by the slick ad campaigns or creative gimmicks of the church and not through self-help sermons that tickle the ears and pet the flesh. Sorry. We need the preaching and the living of the gospel. We need a true move of God in the hearts and the minds of lost sinners and carnal saints. That will happen as the church cries out in prayer for the salvation of God to come to men's hearts and the power of His Spirit to transform men's souls. We are commanded to pray, to go, to teach all men and to make disciples. This is our commission. This is what Jesus commands us to do. The Scripture teaches us in 1 John 5, 3, That His commandments are not burdensome because this is the love of God. Our motivation is not fear, but love. It's not legalism, but faith that moves us. Let us love and obey His command to be, to go, and to make disciples 
so that he who glories will glory in the Lord. Amen. This is our challenge as the people of God. But it's got to become our heart. This isn't just a challenge that we accept and say, okay, I'm going to go out and try to do this now. Somewhere, this has got to become our heart. Moms and dads, you don't get up every day and say, well, I'm going to give it my best shot to love my kids today and take care of them. And, you know, I really don't want to, but I guess, you know, I just have to. I know sometimes you probably feel that way, but the reality is you do what you do because it's in your heart, right? Because there's a love that's been placed in your heart. You didn't put it there. When that, when that baby was birthed, there, there was a love that, I'm telling you what, before that baby was birthed, there's a love there. This isn't just the mechanics of meeting the challenge. Somehow this is a heart issue. When I ask you what message are you preaching, I'm really asking you, where is your heart? Where is your heart for this city? Where is your heart for your friends and your family members? Where is your heart for the people you work with? Where is your heart for those that are lost and on their way to hell without Jesus? I'm not asking you to go out every Saturday and knock on doors and pass out tracts. I'm not asking you to... I'm just asking you to begin to cry out to God. And, and if there's something not right in your heart, if, if it's not in your heart, listen, I've been doing this. I say, God, I'm a pastor. I really think I should have more love and compassion than I do in a lot of ways. I'm not saying this to condemn anyone. I'm just being honest with you. I think we all need to examine our hearts. I think church, it's so easy for church to become a place we come on Sunday. Something we do for a couple of hours and, you know, we've, not even that we're just thinking, well, I've paid my dues to God now. We, we might not even think of it in that way. It's just, just a place we go. It's what we do. It's a good thing. Yes, it's a good thing. But we're not just here because this is a good thing. God didn't just save us so we could just Come together. He saved us because He wants our life to make an impact. He wants the love He poured into our heart to be poured out to those that He's blessed you to come in contact with in whatever capacity. Or that we would begin to just examine our hearts. We've talked a lot about making disciples. Hey, we're going to have a movie night next Saturday. You know why we're going to have a movie night? I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to confess to you. You know why, first and foremost, we're going to have a movie night next Saturday? I'm just going to be honest. Because, number one, I'm like a total and complete Tolkien fanatic. And I, I love all things Tolkien. And I've only seen The Hobbit once, and, and I want to see it. I'm, I, I have a real selfish motive. If no one else comes, I promise you, next Saturday night, come 8 o'clock, I'm watching The Hobbit. I don't care whether anyone's there or not. I'm going to watch it for myself because I love it. And I 
want to do it. For Titus 2 men, the second Saturday in, in uh, May, we're going to play softball. We're going to have co-ed softball. We'll give you more detail in next month's bulletin. We're going to have co-ed softball. Listen, is that an opportunity for you to invite friends and family to fellowship with believers? Yeah, you bet it is. But if that's the only reason we're doing it, then we might as well hang it up. If we don't really like playing softball, if we don't like being together and hanging out together, then we've got this thing wrong. What I'm saying is, the things we do, we should do because they're in our heart to do because we love them. I'm really not here just, just because I'm the pastor of this church. I really do love you. I love being here. I love preaching the gospel. I love teaching the Bible. I love it. If I wasn't doing it here, I'd be doing it somewhere. Might be in a coffee shop. Might be in my living room. I'd be doing it somewhere because it's what I love to do. Oftentimes, I think we do things, we do the things of God because we feel like we have to do them. Because the pastor said, I need to have a heart for the lost, so I better go out and put a chick track in the bathroom. Well, I feel better about myself now. I left that track in the bathroom there. Maybe somebody will get saved. No, we need to do a little more heart examination there, you know? If it becomes an issue of the heart, if it just begins to flow from the heart, if love just begins to flow from your heart, concern for the lost, a desire to see God glorified in the gospel preached, if that just begins to flow from our heart, you know what? It's not going to matter as much right away how much Bible you know. Because people will recognize your heart. You're not sitting there trying to beat them over the head with the Bible. Listen, you need to read your Bible. You need to learn the Word of God. You need to learn what the gospel is. This is why we offer Bible studies. This is why, you know, we've done a whole 18-week course called Not I But Christ, which is, which is I believe, the best, best 18 weeks you can spend if you want to really learn the gospel of Christ. But get in the Bible and begin to read the Scripture. Begin to read the Gospels. Begin to read the words of Jesus. Begin to read the Acts of the Apostles. Begin to read beyond and see beyond the words on the page and see the heart of Christ and the heart of those men and, and that, that literally, in every way, poured their lives out for the sake of the Gospel. Not for worldly gain, but for the eternal glory of the Savior. We are no different than they are. We just live in a different century. God doesn't love the Apostle Paul more than he loves any one of you. You might not be an Apostle Paul, but you're called to preach the same gospel. You're called to have the same heart, the same heart of Jesus for those lost and without hope. Because Christ is our hope. He's the only hope we have. He's the only hope we have to offer the world. And he has called us to offer that hope. What message are you preaching? Let's all stand. Lord, we just ponder that question for a moment. What message are we preaching? I pray, God, that we would embrace the message of the gospel, the message of the cross. They are one and the same. The message of Christ, the message of the scripture, 
There is only one. That message is designed to bring us to a place of revelation, to see and to know one man, Jesus Christ. To find hope and to find life in one man, Jesus Christ. I pray, Father God, even as the Apostle Paul wrote, that you would, Lord, you would destroy the wisdom of the wise, the wisdom of this world, the understanding of the prudent, that we would not operate, Lord, out of worldly wisdom and worldly understanding. I pray, God, that you would break those idols in our life. You would grant us by your grace an ability to live out of the revelation of the Spirit of God. I pray, God, that you would break our hearts and that they would beat with the love of the Savior. That, God, we would not live out of legalism or moralism but we would live out of love. The love you have for us poured into our hearts. That We would pour that love back to you, God. I pray, God, that you would open our eyes as we live our lives every day to see the people around us with fresh eyes, to discern who they are and what What's happening in their lives with godly wisdom. And that you would give us, Lord, the grace and the power and the ability to manifest Christ to them through our life and that our words would reinforce what they already see in us. Use us, Lord, for your glory. Father, we pray for our city and our region. Lord, you put us here. You established this church for a reason. And I pray, God, that we would be mindful of that. We would pray. And we would seek, Lord, to be a people used to bring glory and honor to your name in every way imaginable. We thank you, Lord for loving us. And we thank you for your grace, God. Lord, I lift up the Master's family to you today and Richard's sisters, Lord, as they are celebrating the homegoing of his mom. Lord, possibly even now. And I just pray your grace be in their lives. I pray your peace, Lord. I know they are rejoicing because she has gone on to her heavenly reward. But Lord, I know it's bittersweet. So we pray your peace over them, over the children and grandchildren and all the family and loved ones. Bless them, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day. And uh, continue to pray for Nadine and Cindy and different ones, the masters. And we'll see you next. Uh, we'll see you Wednesday if you're here. Come on out, guys, Tuesday. And be sure and put it on your calendar for The Hobbit next Saturday night. Bless you.